So here now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 8th chapter, verses 40 through 48. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and fell and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And may the Lord... This is such a passage, folks. May the Lord bring it to our understanding. May may he give me clarity. May he sharpen our minds so that we can see the extraordinary Christological and soteriological, that just means salvation, revelation that is here. So let's ask him for that. Our dear Lord, um, this is one of those passages, one of those passages that just takes us into the very presence of your glory and, and a deeper understanding of who you are, what your nature is, your natures, I should say, and the relationship between them and, and what true faith is and how we're saved. There's so much wrapped up in this. I, I know it's a daunting task to be able to cover it uh, quickly in one session. I just pray that you'll give me clear words, that no one will misunderstand those words, especially when we start to delve into your nature. I just pray clarity and understanding on both sides of this. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a pastor now for getting pretty close to 20 years, I I have seen people come to Christ for all kinds of different reasons. Now, when I say come to Christ, I don't necessarily mean being saved. I, I mean to pursue him, to be driven to him for a variety of reasons. For instance, I've seen people come to Jesus, come to the church, come to religion um, out of sheer desperation. Something is in their life, Something, someone is sick, someone is dying, there's just a desperate situation. And, and as a last resort, they've tried everything else, and so they think they'll just try Jesus. And so that brings them to seek him out. I have seen people come to Jesus out of superstition. They, they believe in sort of a mysticism. They, they saw a sign or they, or they heard a word and they think that they can come to church and just through osmosis that they can absorb the spirit and get healed in some way or saved in some way because there are trinkets or there are liturgies or there are things that people do that can bring about that healing or that salvation. 
I've seen many people come to Jesus out of fear. My, my first experience was out of fear. I was a young boy and walked the aisle because I didn't want to go to hell. I, I, I didn't know Jesus. I, I wasn't a member of his family. I just wanted to avoid hell and it scared me to death. So I, I came to Jesus because for that reason. But I've noticed something over the years, and this is kind of where I want to focus, that sometimes that people who come to Jesus for all the wrong reasons, and by the way, the reasons I've just mentioned are all the wrong reasons, but I've seen those people who come to Jesus for those reasons, I've seen them end up with a true relationship with Jesus, pillars of the church, bearing tremendous fruit, knowing Jesus in their heart and truly believing in him. Whatever reason they were brought to Jesus, all of a sudden that turns into something that is glorious. But by the same token, I've seen so many people come to Jesus for that reason. And, and then, though they dabble around in religion for a while. You know, they stick around. But when God doesn't provide what they want, they get angry at the church, they get angry at God, and they leave. Uh, or God does give them what they want, and then they don't need them anymore, so they still leave. So so what is the what is the factor what, what is the crucial element? You, you have people coming to Jesus for all the wrong reasons, but they're the same reasons. Some people are saved and some people aren't. What, what, what is the thread that runs through those who do come to know the Lord? Well, we're going to delve into that, but let me go ahead and tell you. The, 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 regardless of what brings people to Jesus, it is the regeneration of the soul by the Holy Spirit and a true belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior that brings about salvation. You're saved through faith. That's it. And if it's a real faith, then regardless of what brought you into the church, that faith is, is, is rewarded because it, it is something that God uses to bring you to a relationship with him. Now, we're going to delve into that this morning. We have, and I will tell you, we have a huge passage before us. I, I hope that I can make that clear on the front end. That, that this is very deep stuff. Uh, and, and I didn't write it, so don't get mad at me because we're going to get deep. It, it's, it's there, and, and we have to try to see what it means. And, and, and we're going to delve into the nature of who Jesus is and the relationship between his natures. We're going to delve into how we're saved and what kind of faith that we're saved with and where that faith comes from. And, and the fact that most of evangelical America or the West in general has the complete opposite view of the one that's going to be expressed here. So I do pray for clarity that I can bring these words out. Now, this is a huge order. I can't do it in a short amount of time. So I'm going to have to sort of skip through some things. I'm not going to set the context here, although it is significant. There's a flow from the trip to the other side. We're going to see not only the disciples on the boat and the kind of faith they had. Not only are we going to see sort of a progression or a flow from the gathering demoniac that that we just had that lesson the last couple of Sundays and his salvation at the hands of Jesus. We're also going to bring into it the woman of ill repute because all of those are very closely associated with this passage. But I, I'm just going to have to kind of breeze over that and get directly into our passage if I'm going to be able to do get into what I want to get into later on. Now, it's a very unique passage. All the three synoptics carry it the same way. It's a story within a story or a miracle within a miracle, a healing within a healing. 
And so there's a reason for that. There are relationships between the, the, the healing or the resurrection of Jairus' daughter and this woman being healed. But I'm just not going to have time to go into developing that. So I'm just really going to skip over. But just by means of introduction, there's just a couple of things I want to get out of the story of Jairus. And then we're going to dive right into this story of the woman with a flow of blood. So look there in the 40th verse. And we will uh, make our way through that uh, in the first couple of verses. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. We'll talk next week about the vast difference. It appears on the outside between the two crowds, the one he just left on the other side in this crowd. But I think we'll find out that they're pretty much the same when you get right down to it. Uh, But there was a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. That is significant. The ruler of the synagogue means that he is one, uh, if not the policeman of Judaism, of the doctrine of Judaism. And so therefore, he's one of the ones pitted against Jesus. And it's his job to seek out false doctrines and to sort of be the watchdog there. But he's the one who's going to come down and fall before Jesus. Well, he was a ruler of the synagogue and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. Now, um, there's only two things that I want to pull out of this sort of opening statement. As I said, there's quite a bit of relationship here. But I just want to bring two things out. First of all, uh, the, the, the stage is set for us. And the stage that is set for us is a stage of desperation. This man has every reason not to fall down at Jesus' feet in public. But as a father whose daughter is just about to die, he is driven to desperation. So he comes to Jesus out of that desperation. Well, he kind of sets the stage for the woman who also is going to come to Jesus out of desperation. So that's the first thing I want you to recognize. The second thing is that time is of the essence. The little girl is literally at death's door. And so the man wants Jesus to come immediately before she dies to lay his hands upon her and heal her. As we are going to see, that's not the way things turn out. But the last thing that this man would want to happen is for some lowly woman to stop the whole proceeding in the middle and have Jesus look after her while his daughter dies. I mean, that's kind of a significant part of this story. Now, with that said, look in the second half of that 42nd verse. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. That word pressed that is used there is a word that actually means choked. It's the same word that is used in the parable of the sower to talk about the seed that tried to grow up in the thorns and the thorns choke the life out of it. So you can see the image that is created. First of all, we see there's a great crowd waiting for Jesus. And so um, there, there are already a whole bunch of people there. But then when Jairus, the mo- one of the most respected men in the community, falls down at Jesus' feet and says, come save my daughter. Well, boy, I tell you what, that information shot through the town like, like uh, electricity. And people came from all over town. 
Now, you couple that with the narrow streets of Capernaum. And if you've seen pictures or been there and seen the, the way those streets were, they're very, very small. You, you combine that with a massive crowd and what you get is a bottleneck. And so even though Jesus is moving towards the man's house, it's, it's, it's at a snail's pace. Now, there's, there's several reasons for this. One, we want to, 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 to get the idea of Jesus surrounded by a wall of bodies. Okay, there's people just pressed together. Two, we want to, and this is part of it, this is one of those storms that God brings about for his glory. There needs to be time for the little girl to die. Because for the glory of God, she's not just going to be healed, she's going to be resurrected. So that allows that to happen. But thirdly, it's going to allow this woman to sneak up behind Jesus. So he slowed down to the point where she's able to sneak behind him and uh, and in stealth mode, if you will, and touch him, which is kind of the central part of the story. So let's zoom in on that woman, just like we did with the demoniac and just like we did with the woman of ill repute. I want to kind of zoom in on her and find out the situation, the state that she is in when she comes to Jesus. So that's in the um, 43rd verse. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Now, none of the Gospels tell us the woman's name, just like the woman of ill repute. We, we don't know who she is. But she's commonly known by the defining factor, which is the woman with a flow of blood. She had a flow of blood. Now, now the actual word that is used is a word for hemorrhage. And it can be any kind of a hemorrhage, either in a woman or, or in a man. Um, but scholars are pretty much united because of the context that this is used in, that this is a flow of blood from the womb. Now, it doesn't really matter for the end result for the woman, but more than likely, it's a flow of blood from the womb. And there are many laws in the Old Testament that talk about when a woman has a flow of blood from the womb, uh, even if it's the regular monthly cycle, well, there's a period of uncleanness and defilement. It's not just the woman is unclean, but anything she touches or lies upon is unclean. But Leviticus points out that if for whatever reason there is an extended flow of blood, then the entire time that the woman has that flow of blood, she remains unclean and defiled. So, so this is very significant in understanding this woman. She is in a state of defilement. And, and that means that she's segregated, that, that she's set apart from society. Because just like that demoniac, she's a menace to society. Anyone who touches her becomes ceremonially unclean. And that means that you can't have relationships with your family or socially. It means that she can't go to the synagogue. She can't go to Jerusalem to make sacrifices so she can have her sins atoned for. So in other words, she is in this horrible state of, of shamefulness. She, again, very close to that demoniac who was in the tombs and naked. His whole, his shame was right there for all the world to see. Well, this woman with a 12-year-old 
um, a flow of blood was in the same situation. She was a pariah. She was a scab upon society. And so therefore she was isolated and lonely and, and, and set apart in that way. And as I said earlier, it, because of this has been going on for 12 years, well, everyone just assumed in those days, just like that blind man in John 9, the disciples asked who sinned, this man or his parents, everyone just assumed that some egregious sin was done in this woman's life to cause this hemorrhaging to continue to occur over a 12-year period. Well, apparently during those 12 years, the woman has spent her entire life saving, whatever money she had or was able to generate before she got this illness, she has spent all of it on physicians. Look at what it says. Though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Now, the, the 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 point that we see here is that um, uh, she's been under the influence of physicians, but that hasn't done her any good. Mark goes on to say that she had suffered intensely at the hands of the physicians. Now, we tend to think of going to a doctor or going to a hospital as going to a place that is driven by science and wisdom and knowledge. Of course, they've taken a little bit of a hit during the pandemic as far as that's concerned. But nonetheless, that's basically what we think. And you're, you're stepping up. You're going to the experts as far as how to get healed. Well, that's not the way that it was in, in Jesus' day. In fact, so many physicians were nothing more than snake charmers. These were charlatans. These were people who were skilled at separating people from their money. Now, that is not to say that there were not good physicians, but the fact that Mark says that she suffered at the hands of physicians, she, we, we don't realize how good we have it as far as our medical prowess is concerned. Whenever I, I, I think of someone suffering at the hands of their physicians, I think of George Washington. You know the story about how he died. He, he had a, a constriction of his throat. But in those days, the doctors thought the solution for everything was to bleed the patient. So they started bleeding George Washington. He died of loss of blood. You know, they bled him dry. And, and really, he had a sort of minor condition in his throat. Well, that's kind of the way it's been with this woman. Uh, she, she has been the subject of every kind of a, of, of a scheme as far as being able to heal uh, th- this malady. And most of it was superstition. I, I mean, it was, it was steeped. In superstitious solutions. In fact, William Barclay in his commentary says that the Talmud, official Jewish writings, has no less than 11 cures for a flow of blood. Now, most of them are tonics or something of that nature, but some of them are ridiculous. Carry around an ostrich egg, even if it has been burned, just a piece of an ostrich egg, even if it is all charred, will stop the flow of blood. My personal favorite is to carry around a barley corn that's been taken out of the dung of a white donkey. And if you carry that around with you, it will stop the flow of blood. I mean, this is the, this is what she's been going through. But the point is this. She, she's no stranger 
to superstition. Uh, she, she's been treated with superstition no matter what um, uh, has happened. But I want to point something out. The woman is the very epitome of defilement. But don't miss how Luke is, is revealing Jesus to us. Because Jesus is the friend of the defiled. I mean, over and over again, we see Jesus fearlessly going and healing that which is defiled. He touched a leper, which no one does. He went to the house of a centurion Gentile, which no one does. He let a woman of ill repute fondle and kiss his feet in public, which no one does. He touched the beer of a dead person, which no one does. He went into a spooky Gentile graveyard where there was a demon-possessed man, which no one does. And he is going to heal this woman. There's no one more too defiled for Jesus to heal them. But here's what I want you to see, and this is hugely important, that when Jesus, that which is uncorruptible, comes in contact with that which is defiled, the person or the thing that is defiled instantly becomes cleaned rather than vice versa. If we are to touch that which is defiled, we can become defiled by it. Jesus, exactly the opposite happens. He is so perfect, so uncorruptible, and he is the healer that when he touches that which is defiled, that which is defiled comes clean. That's exactly what happened to this woman. Brothers and sisters, if you know him, that's exactly what happened to you. Because just like you are like that that demoniac in the tombs, you are also just like this woman with an incurable disease. You, you, You see, Luke points it out. He's the physician. He knows that even though she's tried everything, modern, or at least not modern, their medical ability to cure her was absolutely Beyond them. And so what we see is the epitome, not only a woman who has been wrapped up in superstition, but we see a woman who is the very epitome of desperation. When you take a 12 year disease that is incurable and now she's poverty stricken because she spent all of her money. She has suffered. She is in pain. She is segregated from society. She can't see her family. She can't go to the synagogue and she can't make sacrifices for her own atonement. There's no hope for this woman. She's absolutely desperate. That desperation is going to drive her to Jesus. But the question I'm going to ask you is, will that desperation save her? Will that superstition save her? Well, nonetheless, let's take a look because something amazing happens. Look at in verse 44. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. We, 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 we've got to figure out what's going on here. Okay, First of all, she's in stealth mode, right? She sneaks up behind Jesus. Now, she doesn't confront him and say, like the leopard did, if you will, you can make me clean. All right? So she doesn't have that. So she sneaks up behind Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves, why did she do that? Well, several reasons. We'll talk about it when we get to her fear. But she sneaks up behind Jesus and she touches the hem of his garment. Now, the hem of his garment can be the fringe of the garment. It can be. But again, most scholars would say that for a Hebrew man, for Jesus, more than likely what she's talking about, the word also refers to the tassels that every Hebrew man was required to sew on the corners of his garment. 
And those tassels had religious significance to them. They were there so that the man would remember the law of God and remember that he was under commands to keep that law. So it was of a religious significance. So more than likely, the woman sneaks up behind Jesus. You don't sneak if you are if you have a strong faith. That that's a sign of doubt and fear. She sneaks up behind Jesus, and she touches that that fringe that that tassel that has religious significance but the word touch is also revealing it, it doesn't mean just to, to 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 barely touch it it means to clutch or to cling to so the woman comes up and clings to the tassel on Jesus robe and Matthew tells us what she's thinking i mean there's no mystery to what she's thinking she say if i only touch his garment i will be made well well, does she, does she impress you as a woman who is acting out of such an extraordinary faith that that faith will heal her? And yet Jesus is going to say later on, daughter, your faith has made you well. We got to figure this out. What, what kind of faith does she have? Where does it come from? And is, is the, is it all to do with her or something else going on here? You see, it's one thing, brothers and sisters. To believe in Jesus Christ and be healed. Okay, that's one thing. Saving faith is exactly that. Now, later on, I am definitely going to make a comparison, a flow. I'll explain it and justify it later on. But we're not just talking about physical healing here. We're talking about salvation. The woman is going to be saved as part of this. Eternally, her soul is going to be saved. But it's also a healing. We, we, we are not saved by superstition. We're not saved by uh, desperation. We're not saved by fear. So how is this woman saved? Again, it's one thing to believe in Jesus. It's another thing to think that you can grab onto his tassels and in some way there's going to be a transfer of power to you that's going to heal you. And so the woman is steeped in superstition when she comes to Jesus. Now, the extraordinary part of this is that she's healed. I mean, she comes to Jesus for all the wrong reasons. I mean, she's desperate, she's superstitious, and she's full of fear. And yet, she comes to Jesus, she touches, and she is instantly, immediately healed. Both Luke and Mark tell us that it's an immediate healing. This is this is like Jesus on uh, when he calms the wind and the waves. Remember that? And, and it's like the it's coming over the side of the boat, and it didn't just kind of calm down. It's like instantaneous, peace be still. And boom, the water is absolutely placid. It's the same thing with this woman in Instantly, she's healed. <clears throat> Matthew gives it a little bit differently. In the King James, it, it says that from that hour, she was healed. In, in other words, from that point on. And so there's a finality to it, a completeness. And we talked about that when we talked about the demoniac, didn't we? That when the Son of Man sets you free, you're free indeed. When Jesus heals you, you're healed. I mean, there's no going back, no residual of the demons. There's no residual of this flow of blood. This woman is instantaneously, and from that point on for the rest of her life, she's healed. She's saved. Well, let's see what happens next, because now we're going to start getting into the extraordinary part of this. Verse 45, and Jesus said, who was it that touched me? And, and, and when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. 
Okay, so Jesus stops what he's doing. The whole little enterprise, it, it, it's, it's not moving very quickly, but Jesus stops, you know, I'm sure, much to the consternation of Jairus, you know, who wants to get there as soon as possible. But Jesus stops and he turns around and he says, who touched me? Now, we're going to ask the question, and I'm in a minority here, I think, but we're going to ask the question, did Jesus actually know who touched him or is this just a ruse? Well, I don't think he knew who touched him. I don't, I don't think he did because when he says, who touched me, who is a pronoun, touched is a verb. They're both in the masculine. And, and so if he knew a woman had touched him, it wouldn't be in the masculine. So what happens is Jesus turns around, looks at all of the men who are around him and says, okay, which one of you guys touched me? <laughs> well, they all denied it. Okay. And they're probably looking at him like, really? <laughs> what are you talking about? But Peter, Peter, who is really good at articulating what other people are afraid to say, he just, you know, he's always the one that's putting his foot in his mouth, but he's usually talking, you know, talking about something that everybody else is thinking. So Peter says, Master, you're surrounded by people and they are pressing in on you. Those are very descriptive words. Uh, it kind of defines the scene. That word for surrounded That's the word for incarcerated. You're literally in a jail of bodies. You have got bodies all around you. You can't move. So you couldn't leave this place if you wanted to. You are in a prison of bodies. And the word for pressed, you're pressing up against you. It's a word that means squeeze. It means that when you get into a crowd, have you ever been to a crowd that just starts to almost have a, a like a vice? It begins to squeeze you. I've been in the Port-au-Prince airport several times like that. Where, where I mean, it's just a crowd starts moving and you have to move with them because they are squeezing in on you. In fact, the word that is used here is the same word that is used in the Septuagint of Balaam's donkey. Remember when Balaam's donkey sees the angel and he tries to avoid it? Well, he squeezes Balaam's foot between his body and a wall. That's when Balaam starts beating the poor thing. But but that's the same word. And so Jesus is surrounded by bodies and he's being squeezed by those bodies. And yet he says, who touched me? So so Peter and the rest of the guys around there think that, that he's crazy. This is crazy talk. But then Jesus repeats it. He contradicts Peter. Look what he says in the 45th verse. And Jesus said, I'm sorry, 46th verse. But Jesus said, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone from me. Oh, my goodness, brothers and sisters, we got to figure this one out. This is a complex situation. I apologize beforehand. But there's no way for us to look at this or to get into it unless we get very Christological, very theological. We've got to figure out what's going on when Jesus says this. Now, again, there are those who believe that Jesus is saying this as a ruse. And when I say those, I'm talking about some heavyweights. John Calvin, for instance, John MacArthur and others. They, they, they say, no, no, Jesus didn't heal anyone when he didn't know what he was doing. Well, I don't think I disagree with them. Uh, I, I, I agree in the sense that Jesus never actually healed anyone that wasn't willful. But I want to go a little deeper because Jesus is not just the divine. He's also the human. 
and the two natures exist in one person. And I think we've got to delve into that. That's where the real window is. So I don't think I disagree with those two scholars or any of the other ones. I, I just think that I'm, I'm going to go a little bit deeper into the, the subject than that. Um, they both say that the reason that Jesus sort of says it this way is so that he draws the woman out so that she will confess that she's the one that did it. And I don't, I don't deny that either. But I think if Jesus actually knew in his humanity, the human being who walks through that street and is now surrounded by people, if he in his humanity knew that a woman had just come up and touched him and been healed and he acted like he didn't, I'm sorry, that would be disingenuous. I don't think Jesus plays those kinds of games. So in other words, there's something deeper here that we need to see. Two things pop out. First of all, notice that the power goes out of Jesus. Notice that. Notice that he felt it physically. There, there was almost a depletion. There's, there's almost like there, there's a withdrawal in, in his energy and power that takes place when this healing occurs. And, and what I think that means is that Jesus felt each time he worked a miracle, it was something that took it out of him. And, and, and when you think about his life and his ministry, you recognize that on some occasions he spent all day, he spent all night healing people. And if each time he did that, it exhausted him more and more than you can realize why there were occasions that Jesus had to just get away. He had to go get up on top of a mountain because his body needs to recuperate. We can understand why he got into the boat to go to the other side and fell asleep in the midst of a life-threatening storm. Because the man is utterly exhausted by his ministry. So each time he was to do in a miracle of that nature, it was like something, it goes out of him and he can feel that. But the second thing I want you to see, and again, this is a totally moot point, if all he is doing is a ruse, if he's just saying, oh, yeah, who did that, when he really actually knew in his humanity, then um, I think that's a little bit disingenuous, and my point is going to be a totally moot. But when Jesus makes the statement in his humanity, someone touched me, I perceive, I recognize, I am aware of because of this physical reaction within me that someone who I don't know, who I just referred to in the masculine, touched me. Now, who is it? I believe what it does is it shows us a very powerful thing about Jesus. Now, before I say this, would you please listen to me and not misunderstand what I'm saying? Because I am going to walk down a very narrow path. And there is a deep ditch on my right and there's a deep ditch on my left. And it's not just if I fall into either ditch, I'm going to fall into error. If I fall into either ditch or you interpret me as falling into either ditch, that's heresy. Those are heretical dishes, ditches. So I don't want to lead anyone here into either one of those ditches. Because we are going to delve into the very nature of Jesus Christ who is both God and man at the same time in the same person. So before I get started, for those of you, some of you it's not going to mean anything to, some of you will. I, I want to express that I believe wholeheartedly 
in the creeds of Nicaea from 325 A.D. and of Chalcedon from 451 A.D. Okay, these are the Christological um, councils and creeds came out of those councils. Nicaea, that Jesus is very God of very God. He is of the same substance of God. He's not a, a mock-up of God. He is God in the flesh. Chalcedon, on the other hand, makes it clear that Jesus is not just very God of very God, but he is very God and very man. Truly God, truly man. Holy, completely God. Holy, completely man. A hundred percent God and a hundred percent man in the same person. To use the language of Chalcedon, his, the, the two natures are inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly and inseparably to be found in the same person. That's what I believe. But there are times in Scripture when it becomes clear that the human nature doesn't know everything that the divine nature knows. Now, again, I have to be careful. Because if I divide Jesus too much, I separate him more than we want to, well, then I fall into one ditch. And that's Nestorianism or Apollinarianism or modal monarchianism. All of these ancient heresies are there that want Jesus to be two separate people in one way or another. Two personalities, two natures in one body walking around. Those are heresies and I'm not saying that. By the same token, we don't want to mongrelize Jesus and force him together to have one nature that sometimes acts like God and sometimes acts like man. Well, no, that's Eutychianism. Write that down. I want you to remember it. It's going to be a test after this is over. But that is another heresy. We don't want to go there. Okay, so I don't want to separate Jesus to where you consider him to be almost schizophrenic like two different people. But I also want you to realize that the human nature said, I don't know when the second coming is coming. Only the father knows that. Now, in his divine nature, he's omniscient. He knows everything. But the human nature didn't know everything. So I think what we're seeing here is that the human nature turns around and says, who touched me? Now, how do I know that someone touched me in the way that I'm talking about? Even though I'm surrounded by people, I'm being jostled to and fro. I know that someone touched me because power left me and was healing someone. I know that a healing just occurred. Now, the human Jesus, and again, don't separate them too much. But the human Jesus did not always know what the divine Jesus was doing. But the divine Jesus never heals anyone. Unless it's willful. So the divine God is the one who healed that woman. It was God's prerogative. It was God's sovereign action. And and Jesus says, who was it? But that's his humanity speaking. Because he wasn't aware at that moment who the woman was. But he knew that her faith had healed her. And we're going to have to talk about that in a moment. Well, let's talk about it now to a degree. I'm not going to talk about it fully, but what kind of faith healed this woman? Okay, we just see her touch Jesus and we see a healing that occurred, a salvation that occurred when she touches Jesus. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Well, what kind of faith is it? Is it the faith of desperation? Well, that might have driven her to that point, but that's not what saved her. Is it the faith of superstition? 
Well, she was certainly superstitious when she came up and, and grabbed Jesus, but that's not what saved her either. It, it was it the, the faith of fear, the, the kind of fear that she has. Well, no, fear just stomps out faith. It doesn't grow it in the kind of fear that she had. So there's only one solution. There's only one of uh, a, a kind of faith that that can be. That was a God-given faith that the woman didn't even know she had. She comes to Jesus out of desperation, superstition, and fear. But somewhere along the line, there's been a total and complete regeneration of that woman's soul. And she touches him in faith. And that faith, faith that God gives her, is what heals her. So I'll, I'll, I'll kind of expand on that in just a little bit. Hopefully you're not too confused by that. But let's go ahead and see what the woman's response is when she does this. Verse 47, and when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she's busted, okay? When she saw that she's busted, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had been, why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. So, first thing I want you to see, very interesting, I don't have time to go into it, we, we went into it last week, that we see once again Luke talking about fear. And the fear that is involved with the whole process of salvation. Remember, we saw the fear of the disciples on the sea. The fear that was circumstantial because they thought they were going to perish. We saw another fear replace that. The fear of the holy when they came face to face with Jesus who calmed the wind and the waves. Then we saw the fear of the demons who were afraid that Jesus, because he has power and authority over them, would throw them into the abyss. And finally, we saw the fear of the townspeople who had just seen the supernatural in their midst and they wanted to return to the status quo. Now we see this woman fall down on her face, take the position of fear before Jesus. Well, my contention is very similar to the fear the disciples had. First of all, she has a very good reason to be afraid. Just a regular, normal, everyday reason. <laughs> she is a defiled woman. And she has just gone up and touched the, the, the prophet of Nazareth. Who just so happens to be in the service of the ruler of the synagogue. And it's his job to deal with people like her. Okay, So she has just been <laughs> discovered. And she's ter- terrified over that. But I don't think that's all of her fear. I think that's kind of a circumstantial fear. When she falls down before Jesus, I think it's because she has just come face to face with the holy. She has the same thing that happened to the disciples out on the sea. For 12 years, she's been trying to stop this flow of blood. She touches Jesus and instantly, no matter what brought her there, no matter whether it was desperation, superstition, or fear, what happened was that she was healed. And she was healed immediately and she knew it. So she knows she's in the presence of the holy and that's terrifying. So she falls at his feet. Now, granted, one of the reasons that Jesus wanted her to do that, and I agree with Calvin and MacArthur, they wanted her to make a profession. Profession is extremely important, not only for those around. Remember, he left the demoniac there and said, go tell everybody what God has done for you. Well, that's kind of the same thing he wants the woman to do is to tell everyone there what God has done for her in their presence. But also it's for her benefit. 
Paul's the one that said that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, well, we, we will be saved. It's important in a church when someone comes to know Jesus and wants to join the church that they confess their belief in Jesus. It, it, it is sort of a formalized, it doesn't do anything. It's just an important way that we, we recognize how and why we are saved. But then Jesus tops this whole thing off. If you've been asking yourselves, okay, Pastor Kirby, where are you making the jump from healing to salvation? Well, stick with me. And this last verse becomes apparent. So let's read it, the 48th verse. He said, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Let's start at the end of that sentence. Jesus tells her to go in peace. Go in shalom in the Hebrew context. And in one sense, this could just be a polite goodbye, good to see you, go in peace. I mean, we do that. That was a typical way to say goodbye, but I don't think that's the way Jesus is saying it. In fact, I almost can hear echoes of the woman caught adultery. Go your way and sin no more. You see, shalom, peace, to the Hebrew, was not just the absence of conflict, it was peace with God. Now, the woman, for the first time in 12 years, has peace within her body, okay? She has been in a state of chaos because of this flow of blood. Well, for the first time, she's gone to be healed, and she's actually going to leave as healed, so yes, she's going to leave in peace. But I don't believe that's what Jesus is telling her. I think that he, she, he is going and saying, go in peace because you have been saved, So let me back up a little bit to what he says before that, and I'll see if I can make this clear. Before that, he says to the woman, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Well, Again, what kind of faith does she have, and and, and how did that faith manifest itself? Before I go there, uh, just a little bit of grammar. The pronoun your faith Okay. It's what's known as a genitive of possession. There's lots of different genitives in Greek. And this is one of possession. It means that she has ownership of the faith. But it does not necessarily mean that it came out of her, that she generated it, that she mustered it up. It means that she's in possession of it. For instance, if you were to give me a bicycle as a gift, well, it becomes mine. Because you gave it to me, it becomes mine. And from then on, you would refer to it in the same way. Hey, get on your bicycle and come on over. Well, it's mine, but it doesn't mean I made it. It doesn't mean it came out of me. It doesn't mean that it wasn't gifted to me. It just means that it has been bequeathed to me and now it it is mine. And so that's the statement here. Now, the reason I'm making a big deal about this, because the way that I believe this is being presented to us is, is not just a physical healing, but a spiritual healing. And, 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 and most of evangelical America and Western world is going to see this in one way, and I'm going to see it in another way. If you ask most people why this woman got healed, they will tell you it's because she had faith. She had faith in and of herself, and, and, and she was healed because of her faith. In fact, Jesus says that, your faith has made you well. well what faith? I mean, we looked at the circumstances of this woman's life. Where's faith? 
I mean, what kind of faith would it require for a woman to be able to bring about her own healing? It would, she would have to have faith of Abraham or, or Elijah or Daniel or someone like that. It would have to be an extraordinary faith. And, and, and that faith is not the kind of faith that sneaks up behind somebody in stealth mode, grabs onto a tassel in superstition, and is scared to death that she's going to be caught. That's doubt. That's not faith. This woman did not have any great faith that led to her salvation. And, and, and secondly, that, you know what that makes Jesus, don't you? If, she, if it was her faith, if she is the one who instigated the healing because she just believed so much, well, that makes Jesus no more than a repository of healing power. It's almost like this woman has a little plug, okay? That's her faith. And she can go plug it into Jesus. And whether Jesus wants it or not, he's simply the source of power. It is her faith and her plug. She plugs it into him. The, the healing power comes to her. And Jesus is nothing more than a benign stand, a bystander. No. That, that's not what scripture teaches in any stretch of the imagination. First of all, nowhere in Scripture are you ever going to get a hint that God heals or God does something because he has to. He does something because someone has shown such an amazing faith that he's going to do something against his will. Now, God only heals and saves according to his divine providence. And so there's a, a, another solution here. There's, there, there, there's another scenario, if you will. And that is the woman comes to Jesus in desperation, superstition, and fear. And she, she's come to Jesus for all the wrong reasons. But God has known her before the foundations of the world were set. The divine nature of Jesus, even though the, the, the human nature may not know exactly at the moment what it, what happened, but the divine nature does because he has known her before time began and has brought her to this place. He, he has brought about 12 years of misery. Yes, this is one of those storms that God brings about for his glory, for his power. Just like that blind man in John 9 is for his glory. It's not because somebody sinned. And so therefore the woman has gone through this. She is brought to this place. She comes for the wrong reasons. But God in his mercy and grace gives her the faith through a regenerated heart to believe. Even though she didn't recognize it and what she did. It's all about God, folks. It's not about us. It's not about her at all. God is the one who saves her. God is the one who brings that about. And you say, okay, once again, I'm not sure how you're making the jump between the, the healing that we have here and salvation. Well, it's kind of wrapped up in that first word, daughter. Notice that Jesus refers to her as daughter. Now, in Scripture, the word daughter is almost exclusively used to refer to a biological daughter, a parent Referring to a daughter or referring to the daughter of someone. A biological daughter. On very rare occasions is a daughter used to refer to a young girl in that sense. But it would be very strange, very unusual for Jesus to use the word daughter. In fact, it would be downright socially inappropriate 
for him to use this word of a woman who was older than he is. More than likely, she was. We get the impression that she's a woman who's up in years. I mean, after all, she's been battling this for 12 years. She had to have some time to amass the amount of money to be able to pay the the physicians. We're not told this was done by her parents. This is the woman who has conducted this. So we have every reason to believe that she is older, if not much older than Jesus. And so totally inappropriate for Jesus to say, Daughter, your sins have made you well. But he uses that phrase. So, so, so what is he actually saying? Well, let me back up. Let me, let me sort of make it a, a sort of a broader this discussion. Let's go back to when Jesus says, um, I discerned or I, or I perceive that power has gone out of me. That word for power, uh, Luke uses it some 25 times and almost every single time he uses it, it is to talk about the transmission of the power of God for his purpose and usually for a saving purpose. So that power just in and of itself, that word speaks of salvation. Secondly, the word for heal that is used here, Jesus says, your faith has healed you, but it's the same word for salvation. Back in the seventh chapter, when he said virtually the exact same thing to the woman of ill repute. After he said, your sins are forgiven, a part part of the redemptive plan. He says that your faith has saved you, using the same word. So in other words, very little doubt that the idea of salvation is included here. But it's that word daughter. You see, it's the calling of a daughter. And for this, I want to take you back again. The scripture is so intertwined to that little paragraph earlier in this chapter in between the end of the parable of the sower and the beginning of the trip to the other side. You remember Jesus is teaching or preaching in a house in Capernaum, probably Peter's house, and his mother and his brothers come by to see him. The crowd is so thick they can't get in, so they send word to tell Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. You remember this? Remember what Jesus said? He pointed to his disciples around him and he says, these are my mother and brothers and sisters. In other words, this is my family. So when he says to the woman, daughter, your, 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 your faith has healed you. He's saying, welcome to the family. Welcome to the family of God. You are now a daughter of God most high. Now, again, another sermon, but let's just look at that very, very briefly. How do you get to be a daughter of the son of, of God? There's only one child of God. There's only one legitimate child, and that is Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his, who? Only begotten, one and only son. There's only one child. And that's because there's only one who is the nature of God. He came incarnate, God himself. There's only one who's ever lived. The rest of, them are, uh, rest of us are all sons and daughters of Adam. Paul says in Ephesians that we are the children of wrath. We are the children of judgment. We are the children of darkness and wretchedness and wickedness. How do you become a child of God? John says in his prologue that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God through belief in Jesus Christ. We are 
adopted into the family of God. And when Jesus is saying daughter, he's saying you're adopted. You are saved. You are a member of the family of God. And your faith has saved you. Once again, brothers and sisters, where did that faith come from? Did she have it on her own? No, she didn't. So let me leave you with this. Deep look into who Jesus is. Deep look into the dual natures, the divine nature and the human nature. But ultimately, we need to step back and ask ourselves, do we have the ability to save ourselves? Can we walk up to Jesus and say, I want to be saved. And Jesus is forced, no matter whether or not it's his will or not, whether he has known us before the foundations of the world or not, that he is bound because we have enough faith in and of ourselves that we can walk up to Jesus and say, I believe in you now, you therefore must save me. Scripture simply does not teach that. And yet it is the belief of most of evangelical America. Scripture teaches that it is the sovereign power of God. God saves. God and God alone. So here's the summation of what we have just seen in this woman. God knew her before the foundations of the world. And he knows you. He has known you before the foundations of the world. God, regardless of the reason that this woman came to him, God gave her through his mercy and grace the faith. He transformed her, regenerated her heart. And along with that comes the love of God, a desire to please him, and faith to believe in his only son, Jesus Christ. And because of that faith, Jesus went to the cross for that woman. He died for that woman. He paid for her sins. He took them away. He wrapped her in his righteousness. Just as he has done with any of us who he has drawn to himself out of darkness into his marvelous light. And because of that cross work, God adopts us as children, sons and daughters And we are welcomed into his family. I hope you notice something. That the first word in every one of those sentences was either God or Jesus. So my dear brothers and sisters, and I I actually say that not just to those of you who know your brothers and sisters, but those of you who may not know it yet. Because whether or not you know it, like this woman, it doesn't matter because Jesus is going to have his way with you. He's the hound of heaven and he's not thwarted in his desire to have you with him. So brothers and sisters, desperation may bring you to Jesus, but that desperation is not what saves you. Superstition may bring you to Jesus, but superstition is not what saves you. Fear may bring you to Jesus, but fear is not what saves you. You were saved by the power and the glory of the Holy Spirit who transforms hearts according to the magnificent mercy and grace of God. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. We can't save ourselves 
It is God and God alone who saves us. So give him the glory for his magnificent redemption. Because regardless of why you come to him, it is through his mercy and love and grace that you are given the faith that you need to believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I know that a lot of this is heavy and deep. And I know it's actually, some of it's controversial, although it shouldn't be. Because it's pretty straightforward in your word over and over and over and over and over again. You present us with your sovereignty, your will, your direction, your calling, your salvation, your redemption, your righteousness, your adoption. It it is all you and and it's not us. And, And over and over again, you make us aware of that. Why do we try to change that? Why do, why do we try to make it us who, who plug into you and kind of force you to heal us or to save us? Let us just give you the glory, dear Lord. Let us just give you the glory and get out there and continue to, to, to do what this woman was instructed to do and what the demoniac was instructed to do, to tell other people about the wondrous deeds that you have done for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.